This is the Gary V Audio Experience. Can I ask you, like, how do you define a high-performing team and how do you measure it? I measure, you know, how do I define how to measure it? I, I define it based on how I measure it. I think that for me, a high-performing team starts with retention. I Basically, the only, more than even how much money we have in the bank. I care more about how long are people staying at the company on average. So for me, a high-performing team is first based on retention, um, which is just black and white math. On the gray side, the non-measurable, I use my intuition on how happy are the people. Some people stay in jobs because of money. That is uh, often a gateway to unhappiness. Uh, and so it's not just retention, it's, it's overall common sense slash intuition slash emotional intelligence to get a sense of how happy are they while they're here. And then finally, um, I, I judge performance or, or know how a, it's a high performing team based on the results. You know, for all the warm and fuzzies, I'm sure you sense this in the book that I wrote, for all the warms and fuzzies and la 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 and all this, if you're, you know, in that book are words like tenacity and ambition and, uh, and I, I think work ethic matters and, and I think results matter. I, I think that so much of the world's unhappiness and anxiety is based on the fact that we eliminated or demonized competition at the youth level. The idea that eighth place trophies are a good idea is a huge mistake in my one person's opinion. And so the other way I recognize if there's a high performing team is if they're winning. And in business that means they're hitting their financial goals, both top line revenue and profit. For me, not only do I measure success financially top line and below the line revenue, in a year, I try to look at it in a three, five, seven year window, thus giving, and this is important to hear, thus giving a team the ability to over focus on happiness and retention in a given year that may actually hurt them on their top line and bottom line revenue. But if I look at the body of work, I'm always building businesses in perpetuity. You know, we talk all about building brand which is a marathon, right? Let's build a brand. Yet, you know this, everybody here knows this. The business operators from the CFO down uh, care very much about sales. And we do many things to hurt our brand in the face of hitting numbers and sales because we are in corporate environments held accountable to stock prices. What's great about running private businesses is I went three, I mean, I've only been running Vayner for 14 years. There was three years where we barely made a profit. It was, it was, I was transitioning, we were growing up, I wanted to try some things, I made a lot of mistakes, we had some casting issues, uh, we had some product market fit, fit issues, but, you know, had I been a publicly traded CEO, I might have not been able to make it to that fourth year in the window that I'm referring to, which ended up being our highest profit year ever. And so, uh, you know, for, I, I think high performing teams look different in different environments. In the private sector, where you have more time, I think you can lean into a lot more of the emotion. 
in the publicly traded sector, you've gotta find a little bit more of a balance, unfortunately, and that gives it a bigger challenge. The, the, everybody here can talk all they want about, not about the results, and the reality is we are, we are unfortunately, this is what we signed up for. Just like athletes, they, it's a great thing to be an athlete, but when you stink and don't perform well, the media and your fans destroy you, like I did with my Jets players this weekend. And so, you know, I think, actually I didn't because I love them so much, but uh, punchline is the results matter. So now comes the second question, which is, uh, what is your strategy to, and, and here please use the emotional ingredients, because I love when in the second part of the book when you use your emotional ingredients with examples. Um, with the, what would be your emotional ingredients with your strategy to build a high performance, performing team in a change environment because this is, I think, it, it's I'm facing the yeah. most, the biggest challenge. It's, it's, it's always changing, you know. So, how, what would be your strategy? Uh, with the ingredients in the book and in real life, which is why I wrote it, uh, I think humility, number one. I think the super ingredient, the super emotional nuance that most alpha winning leaders miss is the power of humility. For example, for me, with all the tenacity and conviction and accountability and self-awareness, all the traits that I talk about in the book that I have, um, conviction. I mean, one of the reasons I think I'm able to lead teams is conviction. There's no confusion for my 1,500 employees where I'm taking the company and what I care about. However, I think the only thing that makes me palpable, the thing that makes the whole engine, the the gas, the electricity, the sun, that makes it all work is humility. And I think the biggest thing for a lot of people watching here is a lack of humility creates a, a humongous detachment between you and your team. And so uh, something that's just absolutely not talked enough about, whether you employ two people and have a small business of three, or you have 800 people in your department, is how significant humility is because it humanizes you. It also makes people feel safe. When you're willing to admit you don't know or you messed up, it allows your direct reports and their reports to do the same, creating a much more emotionally inclusive environment. You know, we talk, thank God the world now talks a lot more about inclusion from a gender and race and religion and things of that nature. However, I would argue that the biggest issue in the world today is the weaponization of fear. Politically, parenting, I think parents using fear to parent the way they choose to is actually creating a lot of vulnerability in children and is the reason for anxiety at scale. And I would argue that in corporate, in business, bosses that use fear um, instead of humility which triggers safety is the missing trait of the majority. I think it is one part of your book, you talk about your dad, right? Running the, the, the wine business and you talk about that really, right? So how he actually had the culture and how he perceived managing in the older times and right now. So what is the difference? So it cannot touch base what you're saying, right? My father was born and raised and lived the first 22 years of his life in the Soviet Union, which is a communist country. 
where everyone stole from the businesses because the businesses were government owned and the only way the human spirit could get forward was to take the enormous risk of significant jail time to steal and yet almost every citizen in the country did so. And so you can imagine how dire that was. That led my father to not trust anything or anybody in any shape or form. So when he came to America and started his own business, when I was 14 years old, we lived 45 minutes from my dad's liquor store and the first time I ever went to my dad's liquor store to work, he didn't say a word to me the entire drive. I was yapping, because I've been me the whole time. Yep, 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 yep. He didn't say a word. We pull up to the store, and my dad looks at me, he goes, keep an eye on the employees. They try to steal. So my father had a very different perspective on his employees, um, and I used to judge him and be angry at him for it. As I got more mature, I became much more thoughtful and understanding of where he came from and what it meant, and you know, so I have a lot of, empathy for it, however, I was visceral to be the opposite. Not because my father was like that, but because my mother is like that and I share her DNA and because I saw the damaging effects of how employees felt when they weren't trusted by leadership. Um, and uh, and I have, you know, to that point in the book I talk about my inability to be candorous through the majority of my career until I repackaged it as kind candor And a lot of that also had to do with sharing my mom's DNA, that's a shortcoming of hers, shortcoming of mine, and a reaction to my father. My father's incredibly candorous, however, he delivers that candor with a whole lot of spicy, and that's me being very kind, and you know, that made me also visceral to confrontation and to feedback, and I wasn't able to calibrate it. These things all very much matter in the evolution of a leader, of a boss, and uh, yes, I'm very affected by my childhood and, and really I'm the byproduct of my childhood like anybody else. At 14 years old, I worked in a retail store. By the time I was 18, I spent on thousands, thousands of hours on, on the store floor watching customers engage with products and I managed people since I was a teenager and so you know, here I am 30 years later, 46 years old and I'm a consumerist and I'm a deeply passionate, emotional intelligence leader and, uh, and I'm very grateful for my circumstances. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. And I think, you know, you touched base for uh, Can I answer something, something that Daphne brought yeah. up? How do you evaluate new yeah. candidates in your interviews on humility and conviction? Daphne, I'm gonna throw you an interesting one. My, I've hired tens of thousands of people at this point in my young life. Um, I have outrageous intuition. I mean, the first three companies I invested in in 2006 were Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. I've been very right of the trends and, and, and the individuals that I've you know, picked to be stars of the world. I've got it, right? I've got it, comma, the amount of times I've hired people and was downright wrong is staggering. So, I can tell you that the interview process is one of the most challenging processes to make a good call. So I've adopted and implemented and have watched other companies scale this advice. I hire fast, I don't overthink it because I know there's a 50% chance I'm gonna be wrong so I might as well go fast because the time is valuable. I fire faster. 
if I know something's wrong, and sometimes that's within a week, by the way, we, we invest in being cordial and empathetic, but we acknowledge, and we candor now, we do that well, but somebody could be here for three or four months and be out the door if it's really wrong, we just know. And then finally, and this is the biggest mistake corporate America makes, I promote faster. Hire fast, fire faster, promote fastest. Just like you know when something's wrong, you know when something's right. And the amount of times I've tapped on the shoulder, even if you don't promote, there's kids that work in my company that, I, I, I hit up somebody yesterday and literally he came in the office in a meeting and I just grabbed him before it started and said, hey, you're doing a good job. I see it. And so um, that's how I think about it. How many people know in their soul that the concept of feedback is often a disguise for people to be political or even occasionally nasty. To me, the problem with feedback and the problem with you know, candor has always been that it actually creates a framework for the worst of human behavior, right? And so one of the reasons I stood up this concept of kind candor, I have been blown away by just the word kind in front of candor as a principal at VaynerMedia and VaynerX, how much that's verberated to a couple of very interesting things. You may think it's most impacted people being nicer when they give feedback. As a matter of fact, in our company, it's allowed more people to give feedback. Many, many people struggled with telling their friend or acquaintance or someone they liked working with proper feedback when it was just feedback but as soon as it was kind candor, they could say, Andrew, I love you, you're a wonderful person. Hey, on the, you know, the way you videotape, like, those, are, those are real things. And so I think that putting an adjective that speaks to a positive human element in front of something like candor or feedback or reviews actually changes the dynamic aggressively and almost brings, if I use a political analogy, it almost brings the blue and the red more towards a purple. And so you have the people who are too kind and can't give feedback, kind candor, pleasant feedback all of a sudden allows them to do it. And you also confine and, and really put on notice the people that use candor or radical candor or feedback um, as, hey, this is not your chance to suppress this person because you're scared they're gonna take your job. This is not your chance to be a little nasty because you don't like the, their political views. or the, you know. And so I actually think that is a very big deal. Okay. And what about the one who receive? What do you believe that should be, do you think it's the same, the same emotional ingredients that we should practice ourselves? Because of course, of course. If, if, look at what we've talked about today. If you're on the receiving end of feedback, and you start with humility, you can handle anything. I'll give you an example. I have an ungodly amount of followers in social media. I post as much as anyone on earth. I, I post on every platform, LinkedIn to, to TikTok. On LinkedIn, the reply might be, because I have radical marketing views for corporate America, but I think they're absolutely right and corporate America is radically confused. But I may post something and you may get a very traditional uh, marketing professor or a very traditional marketer 
be, belittle me in the comments on LinkedIn. An hour later I may post on TikTok and do something cool, but I might have a 15 year old say, get off of TikTok, old man, right? And so <laughs> if I did not have humility okay. in understanding, yeah, I understand a lot of things have gone well for me, but comma, who really cares? And at the end of the day, far more special people than me have passed away. We give them roses for 24 hours and everybody besides their family moves on with their life, right? I mean, we're, we're a couple hours away from people for not thinking twice about Queen Elizabeth. She, she, she was the queen for 70 years. 70. And I'm telling you, I know this world. It's what I do for a living. 24 hours and it's gonna go into the backdrop, right? So who am I? And so I think when you're getting feedback from your boss saying, hey, you don't have enough tenacity, or hey, you need to be more thoughtful of your marketing, or hey, you're not strong at supply chain, or hey, don't get mad at them. Deploy humility and say, is there any truth in this? I have been uncomfortably professionally successful for 25 years. A 15 year old kid will leave a comment and say I'm wrong about something and I think about it for a half a second to make sure that I never get too high on my own supply, my own success. That humility allows me also to deal with accolades. This is a very important nuance of humility. Humility is helping me when everyone tries to shit on me, but humility actually helps me even more with my popularity now, when I post something, I get 100 people that leave a goat emoji, greatest of all time. I actually argue that humility is helping me more with that because if I actually believed that, I would become audacious, complacent, potentially unbearable to be around, and, and those are far more uh, disgusting traits that I'm not interested in. I think humility needs its day. You know, it's funny, I started a wine brand years ago called Empathy Wines. It's right there. I started it many years ago, six, five years ago or so. And at the time, the word was not, was not necessarily, if you look at the Google Trends, was, it was out there, but it wasn't really popular. Obviously there was a lot of tension, racial, political tension in the US and the word started to populate. <clears throat> and a lot of my friends were like, how did you know? And I said, because I do market research. I read my comments, I read my DMs. I think much like humility, excuse me, much like empathy five years ago, I have a real belief that over the next decade, humility will become one of the most important conversations amongst parents and teachers um, and people that genuinely care about humanity. I believe it is one of the secret ingredients to far more success. Um, I think when you lack it, you're exposing insecurity. I think insecurity leads to great unhappiness and I'm looking forward to that mature conversation. And I know you have plenty of companies and you manage a lot of complexity as well. So I'd like to hear more from you. How do you manage crushing the complexity to have your employees engage and you know, kind of still having the agile um, sense, right? So, um, what I, something I call moldable dictatorship. So I, I'm a private company with no board and so this is a dictatorship, like, right? <laughs> I think that's a very aggressive word and I use it more for tongue in cheek and everyone laughs but the reason I call it moldable is 
I have very deep convictions of how I see the world. I'm sure for the people that have never met me before, even in this first 30 minutes, they're like, I think he believes in what he's saying. <laughs> it's very in me. Um, I, the way we manage it is a couple ways. This is very interesting, I hope this helps somebody. I believe the reason it's working for me, and, what, and more importantly, I don't like using a focus group of one. One of the reasons I started Vayner was to work with many companies. At this point we've worked with a thousand plus over the last 13 years in significant ways. Uh, first of all, it's all human. A global company is immediately in CPG land in a very vulnerable spot based on who they're gonna give the brand power to to make the subjective creative calls. So if the global team is making the creative call, the local team is frustrated. The way that works only is when the global leader and the local leader have humanity towards each other to work it through, right? So first of all, to my dictatorship, every leader that has cross-functional, potential political crossover where decisions have to be made, in my world, that is office leads versus discipline leads, right? The head of creative, Rob, is here, but you know Daisy, who runs EMEA, and Vijay, who's the head of creative there, may have a different point than Rob. My thing is, if there is a problem, I need to get involved if you are unable to resolve it, and I need to get involved early, not you need to drag it, because then you're not going fast, right? Then it's politics. So it's a dictatorship of how we operate. When cross this, when two departments who are in the same game don't, don't get along or don't agree, A, if they don't get along, that immediately is something we attack. Cutting out cancer is the most important thing you should do in a body. When two people in an organization don't get along, that is corporate cancer. So that's HR, real life, humanity, all the good stuff. B, if it's actually just beautiful, we have something going on right now with one global office and one discipline lead, it's actually beautiful. I'm watching it from afar. They're not even, I'm not even sure they know I'm paying attention. They're actually being overly cordial to each other. They have different points of view and they're trying to over appease and be good. It's a beautiful thing, but we need to go fast. I mean, it's, oh, how, I can't wait six months for you guys to over nice each other. So we need to get to business, so I need to get involved. We call it the Supreme Court. When two people can't get to the right place, they come to me, we have a Supreme Court meeting, I make a decision and everybody moves forward. Okay. I think that is scalable because Companies that are even Fortune 500s, they have CEOs, they have COOs, they do. And that's what people should be spending their time on. Number two, and more importantly than what I just said, the number one way you scale this is you as a leader, the CEO, she or he can pick the players, but she can't tell them what plays to run. Let me say this nice and slow. The reason things work for me is I am not overanalyzing what they're doing as long as the train is moving. I believe that I get to pick the head of APEC. I put Gabby, the head of our LATAM, I picked Gabby. I hired Gabby to run Vayner LATAM, right? I don't need to be in her business every hour on the hour. I don't need to have her over communicate to me if she's hitting her, I picked her. I'm gonna let her breathe. You get to pick the person but then let them breathe. Everyone's, that's right. Trust is imperative. It makes people feel safe. It, you, you also have to give them time. You know, and so 
I think that from the top of leadership, you get to pick the people. If I don't like what Tim's doing in APAC, I can fire Tim. So it's accountability at the top of picking people, creating a couple of simple rules to allow people to play well with each other, and then understanding everything is your fault, accountability. If everything at Vayner, everything at Vayner is my fault. Because if somebody's not doing it well, I was the one who hired them, and if I didn't hire them directly, I hired the person that hired them. Full accountability. So they said, how do you make sure you're listening to the voice of your employees? You mentioned retention is very important to you. Do you have a strategy or formal channel for your employees for your feed, provide feedback? Sylvia, it's not a system. It's not an Excel sheet. It's not a form. It's not a review cycle. It's a culture. Do we have a formal channel? Yes. It's called an incredible environment of happiness and kindness and kind candor that allows people to feel comfortable to talk to each other. We had a thousand person all hands on. Andrew, I don't know if you saw this the other day. Last one or two hands on. All hands on, thousand people. While I'm doing, I'm in the middle of my presentation and the chat's always running fast in Vayner because they know I love it, like you can tell here today. So it's going fast, there's a lot of them. They feel comfortable. It's not uh, overly corporate. And an employee who'd only been here for six months in the chat said, Gary, I'm upset with you. You canceled our meeting yesterday. Stop me abrupt in the, I stopped dead in the middle of the presentation said I need to address this. I'm so sorry. You know, given what I do for a living occasionally, <laughs> AKA every day three fires come up and I'm really sad that I canceled it. You will get it, we'll get it rescheduled. The amount of senior leaders who'd been here for less than a year that worked in agency world for 10, 15 years that reached out to me and were just flabbergasted that that was the response, that I even addressed it, that that's how I addressed it. And so it's culture. I love how people are like, well, we have a system for that. A system's only as good as its culture. People are like, we have a handbook. I'm like, words are taken into context. America has a constitution. I don't know if anybody heard on here, people read it differently. The Bible is interpreted differently. The Torah is interpreted differently. The Quran is interpreted differently. The Constitution, the Bill of Rights. These fucking bullshit handbooks and fucking manifestos that companies have are pillars. They're only as good as the way you act within them. Otherwise they're just bullshit words often used to weaponize fakeness. Your companies will have kind of high performers, right? So we really want to work with you and really high performers. How do you manage their expectations? The expectations of whom? High performance. With it, ah, you mean how do I, that's a very good question. How do I manage Manage. the expectations of my highest performers? Very carefully. This is a very good question. Um, The way I do it is if someone is truly a high performer and I believe you've got to cut that off at scale, somewhere in the basis of one to two percent of the employees, to do what I'm about to tell you. There's other ways, but this is what works for me. Number one, high touch. Constant texting, constant meetings, high touch. If you're ever detached communication-wise from your top performers, you're dead. So number one, religion. In my Number one religion, high touch, wildly engaged. Back to family, dinners with the plus ones, 
right? All of that, that's number one. Number two, over-communication to make them feel, this is a big one, over-communication to make them feel safe, to change their mind of their ambitions. This one's gonna be a curveball. I'm excited to see the comments. The number one thing I've recognized in the last 25 years of managing people about high performers is their North Stars change. So a 24 year old who's come in here two years in and is completely dominated may sit down with me and she may tell me that she's gonna be the CEO of the whole company one day. And I get excited. I go, good, because I'm old and I can't wait for someone to take over. And we laugh. Sometimes that 24 year old at 29 finds their life partner. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, she and he's not in the office 15 hours a day every day. And, okay. and they're not going down the path of becoming the CEO anymore. And I'm very conscious of that. First of all, don't forget what I said, high touch, so I'm paying attention. And either I, if they sit on it too long, or they tend to bring up like, hey, you know, I think I need a little more work-life balance. And I'm like, mazel tov, amazing. I, I don't need you to be the CEO. You wanted to be the CEO. You're gonna work your face off. Let there be no confusion. There is no other way. And back to the earlier question, that's too big of a price for some people with family. Others figure out how to manage it and everything in between, everyone has their own situation. But the, the reality is with high performers is allowing them room to change their mind. Number three, understanding the balance between praise and truth and candor. A lot of times people are concerned, are over complimentary of high performers or disproportionately under complimentary depending on what strategy they're deploying. Many people try to pick at the shortcomings of their high performers to keep them in line. Others try to over verbalize to keep them in line because they give them positive reinforcements but they can't afford maybe the financial or the title things that the person's, and and the truth is you've got to find the middle. It's got to be based on the actual truth. And people struggle with that because they're using one or two or both sides of the equation of what I just said. So for me, it's a lack of fear of losing them. It's a, you know, it's a deep, commitment to an actual relationship above and beyond the professional one. It's over communicating with them when you're not going to deliver on what they want. Gary, I need to be a senior vice president this next race cycle. Let me sleep on it three weeks later. Hey, I think it's gonna be an extra cycle and here's why. And I, and I always say this, hey, I'm making a subjective decision. I might be wrong. I'm in the unfortunate position to have to make that subjective decision. And you have a humanity, humanity, humanity. Humanity is missing. I love that. That's beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Ted M says, what do you think about the quiet quitting trend? Ted, I think there's a much bigger trend that nobody's paying attention to, which is the never applying in the first place trend. If you talk to the average 16 to 22 year old, they are uncomfortably aware that making $50,000 a year, $70,000 a year, selling stuff on Facebook Marketplace or eBay, making Google AdWords, doing small brand deals on TikTok, 
companies are gonna have a tough time getting people in for under 100K when there's so many goddamn options for these kids to make money on the internet. These kids are not growing up with the world we grew up with. And so we, we, we shit on Gen Z for being entitled and lazy and what they're being is thoughtfully understanding of their options. That's interesting. So I believe you have to provide extra value. I'm sitting in a room with Andrew who's filming me. I know how much Andrew makes. I know where he is in his life cycle. He's investing in me and the opportunity. It's not just a job. He's making a bet too. He, he saw what happened to the people before him. It gives him confidence that it's a bet worth taking. We as companies are gonna have to come up with concepts that enable these youngsters to make a bet worth taking because the alternative is more interesting. And I can tell, I have a 15 year old he does garage sales because of you. I'm very humbled. And by the way, what excites me about that is the reason I want 15 year olds to garage sale is first, I want more 15 year olds to stand on their own two feet and buy things with their own money, not their parents' money because that will lead to a lot of happiness. Number two, garage selling teaches a lot of things. It teaches work ethic because if you're gonna get the good stuff, you gotta wake up at 6 a.m. It teaches marketing. If you want your stuff to sell on eBay, you're gonna have to know how to title it and how to write the copy and how to put a picture. And if you're gonna wanna make that transaction, you're gonna have to pack it and go to the post office and do all this stuff. And um, I'm a very big fan of garage sale flipping as a foundation of teaching retail jobs where you deal with a lot of people or garage sale jobs where you're learning a lot of different skills. There's one thing missing, like which that. is after you get the money. Yes. He does this for two years. <laughs> that's it, he's missing. Well, after he gets the money, what he does with the money? Is he, is he, is he, well, yeah, so but you know, know what, but you so know what? I, know, Gary, I, that, uh, I just want to say this. I am going to pick up more oh. questions. Yes, please. I was just going to say, to give you some light at the end of the tunnel, I made a lot of money as a kid trading cards and things of that nature. I was good at saving my money. I, I was really taught because we came from nothing. I was taught well, but I bought so much dumb shit, you can't imagine. When you're a kid, you're a kid. When you're 15, you're 15. And you know, <laughs> I, I had a lot of things going for me, DNA-wise, circumstance-wise, parenting-wise, and I still did plenty of silly things, thus rendering me incredibly empathetic to every child on earth. You're 15. I'm gonna end with one thing, even though I'm late and I, I can see them hovering, but Alice asked somebody something really cool. First, she was very sweet. Gary, you're impressively articulate. Do you have any recommendations on how to improve communication skills? I've thought a lot about this lately because I've come to realize in my older age, I'm like, ooh, this is actually my superpower. Like, geez, this, is, this was it. It was the communication, both publicly, privately, all of it. Which is why the kind candor thing was so humbling. It was my biggest weakness. It was my kryptonite um, for a long time. Publicly, I'm great. You can see I'm very candorous here. And I was doing that consistently, but not privately because I didn't want to hurt people's feelings and I worked on it. But I've got a very good answer for you, Alice. It's based on fear. The reason, I'm, the reason I was not good at candor or clear in my communication was I feared hurting feelings of people I liked and loved. Um, in, in, in business um, and in communicating, all of it comes down to where your fear is. So many of you would be dramatically more articulate if you weren't watching the words you said with the concern of could it get you in trouble in the company. I also think communication is incredibly based on intent. I think one of the reasons we know the communicators of love and communicators of hate 
Gandhi and Hitler. The reason we know that is that they had very deep conviction around their intent. I think most people are passive or indifferent about the words that come out of their mouth. I am deeply passionate about the legacy I leave as a human being. I think Gandhi is the same, but I also think that the bad people were the same. They had deep conviction and intent to do damage, to deploy pain, to create division. And so I think intent is incredibly important in communication and I think, um, I think that's it.